Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to another episode of the New Books Network. My name is Matthias Fueling, and today I have the great pleasure to be interviewing um, Fabio Mattioli. He is a senior lecturer uh, of social anthropology at the University of Melbourne. He just came out with his award-winning book, Dark Finance, Illiquidity and Authoritarianism at the Margins of Europe. Fabio, uh, thanks for joining me. Uh, I want to kick things off by asking um, about yourself. Um, How did you get started in academia? And then from there, how did you get started on your fascinating project? And what is it about? Um, Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and talking about um, the book and and, uh, what I've been doing over the past 10 years with you. Uh, I can't believe really it's already 10 years that I've been been on this project. Um, So I'm Italian and uh, I used to study philosophy and then I went to France and, you know, when you go to Paris, you do like Parisians do. And so I I was corrupted, if you want, into the magical world of anthropology when I studied the OSSS. Um, and then from there, I went to the U.S., where I did a Ph.D. at the CUNY Grad Center. And, and I originally was starting to, to look at issues of space and ethnic uh, confrontation and divisions. And I'd been to Macedonia. I had seen the complexity of the life and the urban dynamics in the city of Skopje. And I was really fascinated by what was happening at the time. And I was interested specifically in malls and new urban, um, uh, if you want, developments and how they bridge different ethnic groups. Um, and so in between going to, you know, from France to the U.S., I had a bit of time while I was applying for, for grad admissions. And so I decided to spend it in Macedonia in 2010. And I was there when this Copy 2014 project was launched. I remember I was going to uh, the architecture school where I, I co-taught a class and I helped out with some sort of anthropological insights into built uh, environment. And my colleagues were all like completely shocked, right? Nobody knew that this was in the cars, that there was a project of this scale and magnitude. And so I started thinking about what that meant for social life. And everybody at that moment was very concerned about what a project that completely refashioned the center of the city along completely different narratives, um, you know, introducing elements of ancient Greece, uh, introducing hundreds of statues, literally recovering older socialist building with, um, you know, plaster facades of neo-baroque sort of aesthetics. Um, all these kinds of things would, would significantly impact the dynamic of the city. So the relational spaces would be ethnically dominated in a certain sense. Uh, and, and I was really interested in, in, in figuring out what would happen. But one of the questions that remained, that people asked in the street and that remained without an answer was where was the money coming from? How could a country like Macedonia, which is a, a fairly poor country in comparative terms, um, certainly one of the poorest in Europe, uh, at the time, such as 2010, which was you know just right after the global financial crisis, um, at a moment when most countries in Europe did not have significant investments in real estate, especially where you know companies in real estate were sort of broke, um, where the European crisis was really taking off in Greece and elsewhere. So how could Macedonia find all this money to to completely remake the center of the city? Um, and so, so yeah, I came back and then I started thinking about these issues of finance and urban space more while I was at the graduate center. You know, that's a place where a lot of people from Settelo to David Harvey to others have been really invested into thinking along those lines. <clears throat> Certainly was, I was affected by the, the, the theoretical as well as cultural environment there. 
And, you know, by 2012, 2013, when I started going back and then 2013, when I really did my, my longer period of fieldwork, not a lot of people were talking about authoritarianism in Macedonia. It was not really something that was described openly. And, and it didn't, it wasn't really the focus of my book at that time. I was really thinking about the finance, the crisis, urban space. Um, but then when I started talking to construction companies, even companies that had said, yes, we would be interested in having you with us. Um, you know, there was a, some sort of new reticence that was emerging. Uh, some people said, what crisis? There's no crisis whatsoever. We're doing fine. And they were doing, you know, fantastically. Others seem to have significantly new debts and problems that weren't there even a year earlier. And then others were simply scared to talk to me. And so I started thinking, huh, what uh, what, what does that tell us about the political environment? And then from there, it became really a story about trying to think about finance, urban space, and environment, triangulating those, those areas of research together. Great. Thank you. And also, too, you have a lot of subjects and themes that you're covering in this book. And it really goes back in many ways to Yugoslavia and to sort of the structure um, of Yugoslav finance. So I was wondering if you could sort of walk me and the listeners through what is the connection between Yugoslav finance, particularly imports, exports, and with the collapse of Yugoslavia, how does that feed into financialization in Macedonia and ultimately to this sort of weird form of authoritarianism that arises in the figure of Nikola uh, Gruevsky? I think you're hitting a very important point here um, because when we think about financialization, we have a tendency to see it uh, from a Western perspective. And so as if finance and financialization were only the kinds of things that we see in Wall Street. And so one of the key points that I make in the book is, look, when we expand the prism to look beyond what we see at home in Western states, we see all sorts of other financial forms that develop organically in specific places that have a different history, a different genealogy, and often different political consequences. <clears throat> so that was one of the things that I started seeing on the ground when I looked at people doing strange stuff such as, you know, uh, accepting to be paid in, in, in kind, you know, in, not actually in money. And, and, didn't, and that didn't seem particularly weird for a lot of people. And I know that other places, you know, construction is a, is a strange place to getting paid. You know, a, lot of, a lot of time, construction payments are delayed because of the nature of building something that takes a lot of time. But in the case of Macedonia, that seemed to be a win-win situation for many, or at least was presented as a win-win situation originally for many. And then once they got into these strange credit arrangements, then it became a, a pernicious um, self-defeating type of dynamic. So the question for me was, how was it people thought of this as in positive terms? And so when you look at this, then you realize there's a longer history of paying in kinds that comes from Yugoslavia um, in, in a very complex way, which I'll get to in a second. The second thing that I, that I think is, is why this question is really important is that, you know, Macedonian authoritarianism was not particularly, was, was described as omnipresent. So people felt it was everywhere in their lives and they couldn't do anything about it by the end of 2013, 2014, especially. Um, but when you look at how it ended, we didn't see the same kind of struggles that we've seen in, say, you know, Erdogan's ability to, to literally destroy an entire military uprising or, you know, Putin's capacity to completely suppress 
um, you know, publicly set for, for many, many years and use, you know, military forces, assassinations and all the rest of it. So there was something about how the regime itself was possibly very fragile that I thought had to do with some longer history of finance and in which this financial dynamics developed. So these were the two reasons I think why there is a, a lot of historical stuff in the book, <laughs> as you can see, and then it sort of branches out into different themes. And um, fortunately or unfortunately, there is little uh, research into this sort of broader financial dynamics um, from Yugoslavia into its successor states. Um, there are a few fantastic authors, but it's it's a it's an enormous amount of material and archival documentation that is unexplored. And in the case of Macedonia, I was certainly the first to open those documents, and I, there were moths, right, dead there from from I don't know for, for twenty years or something because they were mummified. And and so when you look at those documents, you realize that the Yugoslavia of the 60s, 70s, you know, 80s are completely different financial systems in many ways um, that relied often on very complex uh, dynamics where they had to import both uh, certain kind of technologies that they couldn't produce domestically, but also um, they had to find ways to pay uh, those technologies. So they had to find ways to access hard currency. And originally that was done by by sort of grants that were given in the post-war environment. Then Western countries said, no more grants, we're going to give you loans instead, which then had to be, to be paid back. Um, and that en enabled and engendered a series of complex dynamics where import extra companies uh, teamed up with uh, secret services and intelligence agencies to enable these kinds of dynamics to work. Um, and a lot of times that involved exchanging things and not just with money but uh, making complex financial arrangements that made it seem as if people actually had exported certain things but actually they hadn't um, or supplementing and encouraging certain companies that could get to hard currency to actually do that even if they were not paying their subcontractors at home um, so there were all sorts of ways in which the state actually encouraged um, in-kind exchanges uh, either between with other countries or between companies internally so that they could get to this hard currency and that is really to me mind-blowing because uh, it, it really tells a story of the complexity of financial arrangements um, in a socialist country in a way that I don't think has been explored extensively so far okay great and then how does how do these import export sort of arrangements they, as you write in the book, they have a, a strong connection to the Yugoslav Secret Service, and you characterize it as kind of import-exports, there's the hard currency aspect, and sort of these secret service agencies, intelligence forces, they use import-export dynamics to basically have kind of like a slush fund to run intelligence operations. And then after the collapse of Yugoslavia, there's this kind of collapse of all the services, um, I guess it's a classic dynamic across Eastern Europe where all these professional guys who have all this tactical know-how and they have access to all of this money, what do they do next? And I and can you walk us through what happens in the case of Macedonia? Because um, in another classical dynamic, they become very much fused with the transition and then with the creation of a new political regime. But that is not just in the case of like a top-down kind of police state, as we see in the case of Putin. Um, or in a kind of like Soviet throwback like uh, Lukashenko in Belarus. But in Macedonia, it's a much more sort of 
vague authoritarianism. Like it's omnipresent, as you say, but it also has a certain kind of fragility. And that's characterized, as you talk about in the book, by the financialization of everyday life. So how does this happen, this sort of transition from secret services who are wrapped up in these secret accounts with, with Yugoslav import-export to this weird sort of kitschy, financialized, omnipresent authoritarianism in Macedonia? There's two phases to that. And the reason why there's two phases is because Macedonia gets embroiled into the the Yugoslav war, not directly, um, because yes, there has been a conflict in 2001 between ethnic groups in Macedonia, um, but it didn't suffer the fate of, um, you know, what at the time was Yugoslavia, that is Serbia and Montenegro or, you know, Kosovo or, or even, um, of course, uh, you know, Bosnia and Herzegovina, etc. So they, they, they didn't have directly the same kind of violence, uh, but they were still involved in the same sort of um, environment politically. And so you have to think about the fact that the secret services are themselves very complex. And in Yugoslavia, at least, the army was really one of the key um, harbingers of the national identity. And people who I interviewed who were part of secret services for the army um, or even, you know, the Air Force, but anyways, the Armed Force, generally speaking, they saw themselves very much as Yugoslavia um, up until 1991-1992. At that point, then people had to make a decision. Do I, do I still consider myself Yugoslavia? Do I become local, uh, you know, part of the local armed forces? And where are my allegiances? So that's one, one story, right? It's a completely different story for um, the secret services for they were connected to the police, interior ministry, etc. They had a different connection to the territories, the republics. They were much more decentralized. And so for them, the sort of transition is, well, I already have my networks in a specific state and republic. And so they became much more quickly aligned with more nationalist factions or with, with you know parts of successor states that were interested in creating a domestic uh, independent republic. And so the first thing that happens is there is a, con- a disconnect between the two uh, parts of the secret services and therefore, you know, the slash funds or the transition between, you know, former secret agent and now uh, potential oligarch is much more complicated because it's complicated from the, you know, by this sort of con- conflict at the, at the federal level and then conflict from the secret services. And in the case of Macedonia, the army side um, does well at the beginning. They help uh, broker a peaceful transition, and then they get quelled and, and purged very quickly. Uh, by ironically, by the people who are the social democrats or you know the, the successors from the communist side. So they they do very well. They get rid of most of these uh, these folks in the intelligence in the army side. Uh, they create scandals uh, whereby they pitch the army as if and the army secret services if they were trying to allow Serbia to invade and Yugoslavia to invade back. And those are stories brokered and leaked by the secret services on the on the sort of police side, if you want, and internal secret services. And, and that story then allows some oligarchs to emerge um, that are able to negotiate this transition, allow also a lot of um, former Secret Service people who had access to these funds to just disappear into sort of an oblivion uh, or to become little businessmen, not the kind of enormous oligarchs. Those who do very well are the political leaders, which at the time are, especially from the, the Social Democrat side, who 
entangle themselves with the winning component of Discord services and then with the leftovers oligo or leftover sort of former, especially external representatives of companies, importers for, for companies that have access to these international networks. And so from that sort of alliance of bits and pieces of the previous intelligentsia, you have the first um, wave of oligarchs and sort of, you know, more or less, this still decentralized, but but somewhat not completely democratic regime in the in the late 90s, mid late 90s. And Gurevsky comes up uh, together with the original of de Permanet as a reaction to this, right? Saying this is a corrupt regime. It's a former communist regime. It, you know, we need to we need to solve the problem of corruption. Um, and that's his platform then in the in the mid 2000s, early 2000s. So 2006, he comes up with with an attempt to reform the government, to introduce Western you know reforms, to make it uh, a prosperous state, etc. But he doesn't have the support at that moment of that sort of oligarchy or those uh, strong connection to the secret services. Those are things that, through his his cousin and and other people, um, he starts building already in in the first government, which is part of uh, earlier on. And then when he comes to power, that's where he really invests a lot of time, trying to convince, bring the oligarch on board, bring some of these sort of connections to the secret services on board. Um, and Skopje 2014 is a key point or a key element to make it happen because it allows him to, to funnel money, to throw money literally at the oligarchs and say, hey, you know, if you have a construction company or if you want to get into this business, there is a bunch of money that you can get. And, and that's how I think he manages to build some sort of um, support that has this connection or strange connection to the Yugoslav past, not directly, but indirectly. Uh, but it's a it's a weak support in some way because the money is is you know is throwing out too many contracts compared to the money that he actually has. And if he has to keep the Western ha- the Western powers, especially the EU, happy, he has to be able to pay back those loans. So if he pays back the loans, clearly he doesn't have the money to spend, right? Because these are not investments that will bring in more money since it's a construction for uh, monumental stuff, and they they don't generate GDP. So where can he get the money? Well, the simple reason is simple. Might be not simple, but his reasoning is: I'm not going to pay the contracts in full. Uh, but what do I do instead? I allow oligarchs or other companies to then do the same to others, and simply will not pursue those kinds of claims by subcontractors. And that's where the sort of idea of financialization as a form of illiquidity uh, moves forward. Okay, great. And then connecting that to the Yugoslav economy, what? is the nature, or excuse me, of the Macedonian economy after the collapse of Yugoslavia? Because as you write in your book, it's not, Macedonia was not a highly developed sector of the Yugoslav economy, as I understand it. It didn't have a lot of industrial development, um, relatively backward in the context of the Yugoslav economy. And so it seems to be sort of doubly in trouble once Yugoslavia collapses, where it's a small country, lack of natural resources, not a very well-developed economy. And yet it becomes this, with Skopje 2014, it just undergoes this monumental building craze. And so how does that work its way out in the Macedonian economy on the ground? And, and you go into this in your book when you talk about sort of the granular level of workers and how they have to deal, you know, with trying to, you know, they're not getting their contracts in full. They're strapped for cash. Everyone's strapped for cash. Everyone's getting paid in kind. And yet it's sort of 
affects everything around them, and yet it has these sort of roots, again, going back to Yugoslavia. So I'm wondering if you could sort of explain that process of the Macedonian economy leading to the building trades becoming sort of the dominant sector. So when you think about the Macedonian economy from socialism, um, it's not necessarily where not developed. It was the, the wrong kind of development, if you want, for what happened after Yugoslavia. So uh, in the Yugoslav state, there have been decisions about which country will get what kind of companies. And in Macedonia, the decisions had been made with a sort of uh, delayed uh, start. And so the investments came fairly late. Um, but then they were also the wrong kind of investments because they were often heavy industry. So large aluminum plants or a plant that produced uh, iron and other products for shipyards, right? And you were like, well, Macedonia is probably the single country or, you know, one of the few countries in Yugoslavia didn't have access to the sea. So why would you build a shipyard um, uh, set of products there? So there were a few decisions that, that really did not make um, the life in Macedonia much easier. And so it remained very significantly based on things like agriculture, um, some level of, of heavy industry, which then needed the large scale, either large markets or large infrastructure that collapsed with the um, Yugoslav uh, dissolution. And so that created a significant drama, really, in the 90s. 50% of people you know, were without a job, essentially. Um, the second thing that is interesting is that during you, you know, during Yugoslavia, there were a lot of construction companies that were managed either centrally or that went outside of the country to to do jobs. And so you can think about Iraq, you can think about Libya, you can think about you know other places in Eastern Europe where construction companies from Yugoslavia went and did uh, civil work, military work, etc. But that was possible because of the structure of contacts that were held by especially large import export companies at the Yugoslav level, and then subcontracting or anyways, you know, uh, actual building done by specific companies at the local level that were often based in specific specific republic. And Macedonia had a lot of them because Skopje had been almost destroyed in 20, in, sorry, in, in 63 by earthquake. And so there had been a significant amount of money that went into reconstructing Skopje uh, as a city of solidarity with funds coming from both the East and the West, you know, the, the master plan as a co-production between Croatian architects and Kenzo Tange, etc. Right. So all this kind of money had fueled significantly the construction industry in Macedonia. Um, that then, you know, once that was done, they hadn't had a chance to work again, in Macedonia, very significantly, they had often worked outside of the country, in Sochi, again, Iraq, Libya, etc. Once Yugoslavia collapses, those companies also sort of collapse or they have to to make do the way they can. Um, so some of them recycle themselves into working for socialist states. Others um, have to restructure completely. They go from 30,000 employees to maybe a couple of thousands. Um, and so... That, but that leaves a sort of important um, psychological and, and cultural imprint, uh, building things as a good thing, right? As, a, as a, a real realization of especially masculinity, uh, of socialist ideals, etc., of progress overall. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why then COVID-2014 makes such a big impact on, on everyday people is because there has been a longer history of folks 
who used to be very important in Yugoslavia, then sort of lost progressively more importance. And then with the crisis of 20, you know, 2007 and then 2010, um, really couldn't get any job outside of the country. So there was a surplus of construction workers, not as many as during Yugoslavia, but still significant. Um, the second thing is that obviously Macedonia has had a long, a lot of unemployed people, at least formally unemployed. Uh, informal sector is very, is very big. So uh, we, the statistics are big, uh, not really reliable on, on that front. But a lot of people who were former um, industry foremen or people who worked in specific large companies, etc., um, could always recycle themselves through the construction sector. So the construction sector became way through which or either people who wanted to move from one side of the country to another uh, former peasants or, or folks who had lost their jobs um, could always find employment and with the crisis that became increasingly difficult and so really this COVID 2014 allowed the government to pitch itself as uh, you know a government to care for the people because allowed everyday people to get employment and to to be paid um, except then they weren't, right? And that's where it gets really interesting. Great. So from there, let's talk about Skopje 2014. And so what exactly is Skopje 2014? And how does it change the, the lived environment of Skopje? And how does that change the economy? And it, in linking this, this process of oligarchs, and they have all this cash, and they don't know what to do with it, and then linking the everyday economy of out-of-work people working in the informal economy, but with the shadow of a kind of construction mindset? And how do they link together? So 2014 is a project that uh, has a significant scale. That's the first thing that becomes very important because for a lot of people since the 90s, really since the late 80s, Skopje had become um, a city that had lacked investment of any kind, especially visible investment. And so people would say, well, there's nothing to say to see in Skopje, or that Skopje is empty. And when they said that, they meant that there hadn't been the same renewed effort to sustain or even um, keep up the sort of socialist infrastructures, buildings that had been built in the 60s and 70s, that some of which had been built uh, not always to the best standards, um, although I have to say many of them were actual fantastic pieces of architecture of urbanism. Um, but obviously, over time, you know, either sometimes the, the quality of the materials wasn't great or um, they just needed normal man, man attention, and that wasn't done. So for a lot of places in Skopje, they felt derelict. But it was, it was sort of dereliction that was, it was lively. It was full of, of spaces where people could meet, could do things, uh, could hang out, you know, appropriate the city in many ways. And so... It was something that people complained a lot about, but also loved in so many ways because it made Skopje full of, of relations, really. Now, with Skopje 2014, you have a massive investment by the state of the scale that hadn't been seen in, in decades. And so that really struck a chord for many people who were expecting the state to take actions to make their city better, to to give dignity to the people, to urban life. You know, there's different layers of what it meant. You know, for some people it was national pride. Others was, we're tired of being seen as the poor people in Europe. Uh, for others was, well, finally we have actual spaces that, that can work, etc. 
but what they quickly realized was that this new set of buildings, uh, we're talking here about hundreds of interventions, right? We're talking about, uh, I'm forgetting exact numbers, but hundreds of statues and then dozens of new buildings, parking lots, you know, an entire set of national archives, Minister of Foreign Affairs, um, new Justice Department, etc. A, a lot of new government buildings being built that actually saturated the space in the city center to a level that almost made it unusable. And so you had for one of the favorite critiques was that some of the buildings would be so packed together that you couldn't have a uh, fire truck come by and actually, you know, so if there was any fire, you would basically have to leave the building and burn. Um, then at some point they started adding more exotic things like galleons, concrete galleons on the river Vardar. Um, and then they started adding plants like uh, palms, especially they wanted to add a, a panoramic wheel like the London Eye. Um, and people were very, very perplexed by that because, you know, the river Varda is where a lot of the canalization ends up. And so, you know, if you're thinking about fountains spraying water from that, it's not going to be the kind of water you want to drink. You know what I mean? And so there were lots of jokes and perplexity about actually how usable and how people could inhabit this space. And, and so then some of the people that even felt... Um, interested or okay or excited about this new space where they could feel at home or they could feel you know at least seen by the rest of the world then once it was realized that a quick new change in their mind and seeing well this is not a city that i can actually use very easily or it's 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 changed the relational dynamic in the city that was so um, important for for people in scope so that's sort of from the the living through the experience level when you go to the, the question of building it, um, some of these buildings are challenging. So a few people ex- were excited about the fact that we're building a new, a new bridge because it was a new challenging thing and they had to figure out a few things about it. And so they could use their skills. Um, but then they also quickly realized that uh, it was not going to be the best material. In fact, in many cases, it was, it was a terrible construction. So you have the National Archives, whose uh, you know, basement is flooding. Um, you have the extensive use of styropor and other sort of plaster-like materials to the facades, some of which are flammable. And I mean, it was just, it was just a nightmare, right? And the kinds of materials and the realizations of it. Um, and, and that made, you know, made people a bit ambivalent, even those more hardened nationalists. By 2014, 2015, they were starting to see that as not really what you know, what was being sold to them. Um, building it meant that people had a job, but the problem was that it wasn't always a job that was being paid to them on time. So they, 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 their salaries were delayed often, uh, and the delay depended often on the degree to which the company was connected or not to the government. And so companies that were directly connected to the government were better at uh, uh, paying their workers. Um, although, again, they had delays and sometimes they just didn't care about letting them, you know, um, fend for themselves for a period of time. The company where I did most of my research was not connected to the government. And so they had been um, on a sort of successful run for a few years. And then once um, this sort of dynamic kicked in in earnest, then they found themselves at the margins 
of the system and they really struggled to get contracts, they struggled to pay their workers and their workers went you know, up to six months with delays in payments. And you know, when you are not paid for three, four months, five, six even, it becomes a real challenge to even just put food on the table. So for them, then there was copy 2014 became a symbol of oppression in many ways. Um, although not necessarily the kind of pressure that they would solve through uh, political dissent, but that's maybe a different story. Okay. And then how did Skopje 2014 meet the needs of the oligarchy then, um, in terms of, of, of it being this sort of, it was sort of sold as I, as I got it from your book as a kind of Keynesian nationalist stimulus, you know, we're going to promote the glory of Macedonia and its ancient past and Alexander the Great. Um, and then, it, as you said, very quickly, people on the ground start to realize that there's something fishy going on. And as you said, you were you were fascinated by this topic initially because you're wondering, well, where is all the money coming from? If we just had this global financial crisis based on on fundamentally, you know, mortgage problems and sort of over investment in building, how does Macedonia and how does it sort of ruling oligarchical class connected to the government? How does it sort of hit on this idea that this is what we're going to do? We're going to do this insane building project in the capital, and that'll solve all you know our our political and our financial you know problems. So, what's the connection there with the oligarchy, um, who's coming out of sort of this 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 past of Yugoslavia and the and the and the secret agencies and the slush funds? I think the oligarchy. Uh, thought they could write it off and make a lot of money off of it. And, and some some really did, at the beginning especially, and for two reasons. One, it's very hard to give a price to buildings, especially buildings that have some kind of artistic components or statues or things like that. It's very easy to actually disguise how much money you're spending and their worth. And so that means that a lot, you know, people can actually inflate the expenses and then funnel money around in that way. And and one of the ways in which that was done was, or, or the other way around, right? You can actually launder money through buildings. So if you are an oligarch who made a lot of money in, in sketchy ways during the transition, and maybe your money sparked in Belize or sparked in you know Switzerland or somewhere else, your problem becomes how do I bring that money into the country legally and I make it something legal that you can then use? Well, if you have a gigantic building that's, that is really uh, you know, a black pit in terms of money spent, then you can use that and spend the money there through subcontractors and maybe are your own companies as well and then or by buying some of this property, then you can actually launder the money and make it come back to you as a legal uh, process. So that was one of the things... Uh, that was done, and, and oligarchs, especially a few that were part of the family or the inner circle of Groevsky, really, really used both to funnel money out of the country, so through tenders um, in the construction, but not only in the construction, so that they would get a lot of money from the government and pay back sort of nothing or not provide the actual services they said they would. Um, so the money would disappear and then use that money or other money that stashed abroad to, to come back through the construction process. That's one of the ways in which that worked for a lot of the oligarchs. The other thing is um, some of these oligarchs maybe had other investments that weren't doing so well. So they thought, well, if the government is going to invest money into this, yes, maybe I will have payment issues at the beginning, but ultimately 
you know, the personal relations, the, the dependency that then was co- was created there, ensure that they would be able to get something out of it. And I think they miscalculated how how devastating, how pernicious that could become very quickly. And so by, I think, again, 2015, a few oligarchs, even those who had supported originally Gurevsky, started realizing they were not seeing the payments that they wanted to, that many of their workers were really exhausted, um, and that it had become a really tight um, you know, news around their neck. And so they, they started to also push some of this dissent, or to at least enable it um, to happen. Um, but I think for a lot of people that were replaced, um, Skopje 2014 really allowed them to, to ride off the crisis. And I want to say, in, in a sense, I mean, place yourself in the shoes of somebody who is at the, the margins of Europe, um, is getting some money from the European Union, some political support, but not really. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a strange position to be in, and they didn't have a lot of good cards to play if when it comes to the financial crisis. And so to an extent, I think it made a lot of sense to invest in construction because it's one of the easiest, um, you know, doesn't require a lot of super specialized equipment or a skilled workforce can have immediate impact. And so investing in construction could be very well understood as, a, as, as, as you said, as a Keynesian stimulus that didn't have anything bad behind it, right? The, the, where it becomes really problematic is, well, not only they didn't really pay the workers and etc., but also that it was in investment into unproductive things. And so instead of being, you know, let's rebuild hospitals, let's rebuild schools, let's rebuild the capacity of the country, um, they build completely, you know, pointless things uh, from a productive perspective, anyways. That had a clear, um, you know, attempt to craft a narrative. Um, that wasn't going to actually empower people in a substantial sense, but only to project a sense of power for the government to build a empty support in some capacity. Okay, got you. And yeah, I've heard, I've talked to people that have been to Skopje and they describe it as very surreal. And and I think you mentioned the line in your book, which it sort of has this, this weird Las Vegas quality to it after the project where there's these kitschy buildings and they're massive and they, they have like this sort of neoclassical throwback, but they're all incredibly poorly built or like, as you said, bad materials. And yet it's not meant for a kind of sensibility as in Vegas where it's sort of hint, hint, wink, wink. We all know that this is sort of meant for like a public consumption, um, 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 you know, gambling, things like that, where Skopje is sort of the irony as I was reading your book, is that you obviously have in Yugoslavia this, this tradition of monument building under socialism, and a lot of those monuments are more well studied, and they're sort of about kind of the, the ideology of Yugoslav communism and commemorization. And yet there's sort of, Skopje 2014 becomes this like built environment that is such a representation of the kind of degeneration of the political environment and of the kind of sense of, of nationality and the sense of politics, because it just becomes this overblown, kitschy, sort of nightmare where no one feels at home anymore. Um, and I think too, then from there, I want to talk about, or have you, have you talk about this connection then where there's this irony, where there's billions of dollars, billions of euros, I should say, sluicing through the Skopje 2014 building project. And many, many, many people are making tons of money off it, but perversely, all of the workers are experiencing a severe strapping of their cash flow, severe illiquidity. 
And how is that occurring? How is it that all this money can be pouring through the city in the form of these buildings and these trades, and yet actual money is not getting flown around on the ground? So, you know, billions of dollars are being, you know, put up in this statue of Alexander the Great, but, but workers who actually build the statue are seeing no cash. I think it's, a, it's an interesting um, uh, reflection on the dynamic of finance. Uh, it's very easy to centralize finance. And when you rely on an increasingly financialized system, you can easily exclude parts of the population. And I think in that sense, this is a particular manifestation of what we've seen already globally. So we've seen, you know, if you look go to New York, it's pretty obvious that there is billions and billions of dollars that transit through the city and most of the people don't see any of that. Um, and so this is another case of that sort of dynamic, but done in a, in a, with a different mechanism of transmission, whereby um, the government says we're going to invest this money, we have contracts, and you're going to be paid X and Y, and then in the middle of construction says, oh, actually, we're not going to pay you now, we're going to pay you in six months, and then you know, you've already built half of the stuff, so what do you do? Well, the easiest thing to do is not to pay uh, the subcontractor. And then the subcontractor goes, well, you know what? You're not paying me. Then I'm not going to pay my workers. So the, the issue here is that the workers are at the bottom of the chain. And they are the ones who don't have anywhere else to turn. And they can't offload this set of credits, unpaid credits, to anybody else. So their labor then becomes discounted and, and almost devalued to, a, to an extreme level. Um, you have also cases where then subcontractors have to take on additional loans to supplement their work um, that is not being paid because maybe they are foreign or you know they are maybe building lifts or whatever and the, the person who provides a lift is maybe a foreign company and so they um, sort of want to be paid in cash right so they would not accept a scopy apartment in you know if you are a German lift provider um, so then that creates a double dynamic where they're d- squeezed on two on two sides um, but the interesting thing is also when you connect that with the fact that this is not just a question of, of domestic oligarchs. It's also a question of international companies, um, Italian companies, for instance, going to Macedonia to benefit from this amounts of funds, some of which are aid coming to Macedonia, some of which is international loans or investments coming to Macedonia. And there is a whole ecosystem of EU companies that try to, they realize that there is not enough investments at home. And so they they see Macedonian construction boom and they say, you know what, I'm going to just go to go there and try to, you know, to take part of this. And that fuels an interesting complacency from institutional side and and even complicity, really, on the EU side uh, when it comes at the political level to look at the form of authoritarianism that are taking place. And... I think it's sort of a, an open secret, but when you see you know, the many authoritarian regime across the world, uh, there's a rhetoric, you know, we oppose it in the West, but really there is a sense in which economically, at least, we are fueling them actively, right? And the same has happened in Macedonia uh, for a number of years. Uh, the other thing I want to say is when you think about the kitsch dynamic, kitsch is often a term that has been used by international commentators and by domestic elites so you know people in the architecture school that were very against it etc but at least at the beginning domestic construction workers domestic working class uh, people they weren't always so opposed to the government's plan because i think it tapped into that sense of 
again, we have not we have not seen investments for such a long time. We've we have felt our life degrade so much that these kinds of monumental investments signal a rebuilding of the state. So I think the symbology there was not just you know nobody cared about Alexander the Great per se. They cared about the fact that it was a state finally investing into the built environment with all the sort of echoes of socialist Yugoslavia and progress that brought together. Um, then obviously they felt um, that there was a, a trap too, ultimately. But there was a time when the the um, interestingly the kitsch label didn't really um, uh, so much map what was happening on the ground. And um, there was a time when it, it almost seemed possible that this building could build a new ideology around it. And then ultimately uh, it failed. Okay. What is then is the connection between the failure of the Skopje 2014 project to um, the process of compensatia um, that you describe in your book and its gender dynamics, particularly around masculinity and sort of the idea of the male you know, worker is suddenly in a, in a very poor position? And how does that affect you know, everyday gender dynamics? I think um, the Skopje 2014 project has been such a gendered project it's it's been really presented on you know there is a warrior on a horse and that's the symbol of it you know and the, the horse is showing all its genitals then we're sort of obfuscated a little bit but um that's the image that the government wanted to come out of this it's a it's a revanchist idea about who is the boss if you want in the region in the family in the country uh, it came with a series of attacks to or increased intolerance towards uh, queer identities and queer spaces in the city, um, and it was really it was really quite astonishing because when you looked at the actual reality in construction companies, for instance, um, there were there was a lot of work that was done by women in administrative roles to keep everything together, especially when there were dysfunctional payment uh, dynamics going on, right? So, you know, the workers wanted to to see themselves as men, but they felt that the Scopia 2014 project would enable them to to do so, that the government would enable them to do so, but then they weren't paid, so they couldn't be proper men uh, insofar as they couldn't provide for their families, right? So the ideology of gender that they... Thought or thought they could subscribe to by um, and, you know supporting this political project and an urban symbology wasn't actually reflected in the facts and the economic di- dimensions and reality we're living through. Um, and so, who was able to then pull it all together? It was often women who um, you know made sure that the, the sort of animosity that was generated by these contradictions of masculinity didn't explode into something. Uh, terrible in the workplace. So what I observed, and I have to say, um, as a sort of middle class foreign um, anthropologist, I was my gender identity was often questioned, right? Because yes, I looked like a man, but I didn't behave fully like a man. So um, people people often tested me, and maybe for this reason, or maybe just because of of, of my personality, I don't know. But I, I hang out a lot with uh, women on construction sites, women in administrations as well. And so a lot of the descriptions that I give of what's happening are often framed through their commentaries and how they explained as well the dynamics in the workplace. And one of the things that was very clear was that they took it upon themselves um, 
to actually make it function, to make sure that the contradictions of masculinity that were engendered by this, you have to be the man, but also we're not going to pay you, um, created tensions in the workplace. And it was women that tried to mitigate them to make sure that they did not explode. And that was an additional labor on their shoulders on top of what they were already doing, right? Because they had jobs. And so that happened at the you know administrative levels where assistants or female managers try to diffuse the tensions between buyers and managers or you know the director of the company or between different directors, as well as at the level of the construction sites where people who had not been paid for six months, then we're talking about striking or we're talking about you know protesting with letters, etc. And then it was um, women often who managed that situation from becoming explosive. So I think it's an interesting dynamic, not unique. We have seen some of these gender dynamics already taking you know, place in the 90s during the, the height of the transition, uh, where with the retraditionalization of gender roles, women uh, were often asked to take on additional roles. Um, but this felt particularly funny because it came with, again, the attempt to rebuild the image of the man and, and really in this sort of super contradictory way where um, then it befell on women to make it all work out. Gotcha. Okay. And then I want to ask too, is this connection with authoritarianism and how exactly like Nikola Gudovsky and his political party and his sort of clique, how they actually ruled Macedonia and the connection between the illiquidity that you mentioned and the crisis that occurs um, with the Skopje 2014 project and how that ultimately leads to the collapse, this protest movement, the colorful revolution um, against uh, um, Gruevsky and his ruling clique. And yet it, it, it turns out that Gruevsky's regime is quite fragile. It's quite brittle, even though, as you said, there was this sensibility that it was omnipresent and it was everywhere. And yet it turns out that it, that it just needed a sharp push and it could sort of turn over. And so what is the dynamics there of the regime as a form of authoritarianism mixed with this form of illiquidity and finally sort of the nature of it, of it, of its, it's kind of its brittleness, even though it seemingly is, is ever present. When you are struggling to get paid and when suddenly you realize that you can't do things, uh, it, it's a strange feeling because it feels like things are out of reach and there's nothing you can do about it. You just don't have the money. Um, if you have somebody that beats you up with a, with a baton, you can say, this person is beating me up. When you don't have the money in your pockets, it's much harder to understand whose fault it is. Is it the businessmen, bad investments? Is it you know, the government's bad decisions? Is it that somebody is holding up money somewhere? And so the fact that uh, the manifestation, one of the manifestations of authoritarianism was precisely this promise of investments and then this proliferation of work and then the lack of money made it very hard for people to feel that they could actually take actions against it because they, they did not know where to start. And, you know, toppling a regime doesn't necessarily lead to a proliferation of money immediately. So the problem that they were dealing with were immediate problems of, of surviving. And they actually, in this context, saw their regime as the potential answer to everything. So that fueled, I think, a sense of, um, of inevitability of the regime. That's the only solution. That's the only one that keeps us alive. Um, businessmen fed into that regime 
into that sort of way of thinking as well, not only practically because they had to find a way to to make do and to get money, investments, etc., but also because they realized that they could use the excuse of pointing their fingers to the regime or saying it's not my fault to then enact other sort of little scams. And so I've also encountered a lot of people who did not have direct connection to the regime, but, uh, you know, utilized the excuse of nobody's paying anybody to keep on not paying people because they could. And so then there was a proliferation of both everyday excuses as well as structural factors that made it seem that nothing could be done. There were a couple of explosive moments when uh, the regime was very cunning into making sure that uh, the, the projection of its power reached a wider audience. And so in things like protests against building were almost always repressed fairly brutally and effectively. And that, again, give the sense of there is nothing we can do to stop it because literally bulldozers are going to come over and destroy buildings or new buildings will go up and there's nothing we are able to change. So that sort of went on from, well, some of this manifestation maybe started as early in 2006, but really people started talking about this more and more in 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016. These were the years where the, the, the heaviness of the regime was most felt. Um, and then um, some, uh, you know, there was a release of several uh, recordings um, that somehow made their ways into the hands of the opposition. Who did it? How? It's still a bit unclear. Um, but that exposed some of these dealings, some of these terrible uh, atrocities, really, that in some cases the regime had committed, uh, beatings, violence, cover-ups of, uh, of murders, um, etc. And that really stimulated a sense of uh, rebellion. And, and there had already been a, a number of protests that had not reached that sort of tipping point. Um, but with this widespread denunciation, um, I think people really started to get quite pissed, uh, to be honest. At the, at, the, at the large level, at the university level, there have been already protests. So all these friends of critical um, folks joined together into what became known as um, the Sharana Revolution or the, the Colorful Revolution. Some people don't like calling it that. They prefer talking about, you know, protestieram, so I, I'm protesting. Um, but yeah, that sort of movement that took place uh, end of 2015 and early uh, 2016 that eventually led to um, the demise of the government. It was not a spectacular demise. Uh, it was still a sort of trickling away uh, that, that led people to get stuck into this par- very long parliamentary debates about forming a government because they still managed to get the, the relative majority, right? Not enough to form a government, but... Uh, enough to stall process from moving forward. So it didn't quite spectacularly uh, fell apart, but wasn't able to stop it from from happening and ultimately was unable to repress it militarily or in some other ways. Um, to a certain extent, it's also at a particular moment when that happened. It's uh, after or around the Trump election time when suddenly... Um, the specter of Russia's influence in the West became much more relevant. And so I think also from the NATO perspective, um, from a perspective of Western you know, geopolitical interests, suddenly Macedonia became, they realized that there was Macedonia and that Macedonia had 
potentially a role to play into this larger geopolitical realignment that was happening where, you know, Russia started in supporting the, the very significantly publicly um, the Gress government. And so I think a lot of people got scared this could turn into a new Georgia or into a new Ukraine, in fact. And in fact, you know, some people suggest that there was a very heavy-handed intervention by especially the U.S. to make sure that did not happen. Um, whether that's true or not, I think historians will tell us um, in, in a few years. Um but definitely we could see a, a sudden interest into Macedonia, the democracy anyways, that had not been there. And that, I think, helped the movements, the domestic movements that had been endogenous uh, to get over the line. Yeah, and I remember reading, you mentioned there were, there were counter-protests even, though during the process of this of this kind of protester revolution, where it was, it was very, it was proved that there was sort of Serbian intelligence agencies and... Russian intelligence agencies involved in trying to stall the pushback against the regime. Absolutely, absolutely. And there was a moment when they seemed that they were going to actually make it. Um, and um, there, the, the counter-protests were counter-protests for Macedonia or against, you know, the, the talks about changing the name as well later on. So often painted in more nationalist terms. Um but I think where there was either a miscalculation on Gretzky's side or uh, potentially, you know, uh, or, was, or, or, or something didn't happen quite according to plan was when they, when they stormed the parliament, essentially. The parliament decided to, to approve uh, a different government breaking or pushing uh, one of the procedural rules that had been used to stall it. And then uh, they... Groeski's protesters or protesters of his party stormed the government uh, and the assembly, in fact, um, with people have to, you know, a little bit like what happened in, in, in the US, uh, actually. Um, and so they had to flee, they had to hide in places. And for, for, you know, hours, the police didn't answer. Nobody came along. Nobody tried to move these protesters. And that's where you could see also members of the... Um, especially the Serbian, uh, you know, intelligence agencies being present anyways, not sure if they were involved. Uh, speculations are that at that point, the uh, president, who is a close Groeski ally, was going to declare martial law and send tanks in the street. And that did not happen. We don't know whether that's because, as some say, uh, the U.S. ambassador took over, took the president into his residency and said, you're not going to do that. Um, or because there were disagreements within the armed forces as well about whether they would support Kreski. We don't quite know what's the backstory there, but what the thing that everybody expected was that there would be a martial law, that there would be sort of a, a coup, and it failed for some reason. And that's when I think it became very clear that then now there, we are going to integrate Macedonia into NATO and um, look at a path of EU, uh, EU membership. Ironically, um, you know, the, the opposite might be happening for a place like Ukraine, where it might be easier to get integrated into the EU uh, rather than NATO. Or, and and that, that was the route. The opposite happened in Macedonia, where um, NATO became the priority. Um, and EU membership is still a question mark. Okay. And so what then is, is the political state of Macedonia now where 
the old kind of oligarchical authoritarian regime is gone, but has life improved for ordinary Macedonians? Is it still sort of locked in this geopolitical struggle that's obviously going to be heightened now with the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Well, what's the state of Macedonia? It's a, a difficult state for a number of reasons. You have to remember that Macedonia, like most post-socialist states, have had one of the highest incidence of, of deaths because of COVID. Um, and so really the COVID pandemic was managed very well at the beginning where there was significant restrictions. Everybody was having to, to have masks and tests and everything, even before Western countries you know, try to do it more seriously. Macedonia was really taking very significant steps in terms of public health. And then once, you know, the pandemic really took off, all of that went a bit out of the window because of of the mere scale and the sort of international contacts that Macedonia relies on. And so um, so that, that became a, a big issue. And the second thing is that I my reading of the situation is that from a geopolitical standpoint, um, the government that succeeded Gorevsky um, was given green lights to try, well, to, to join NATO and then to try to join the EU. And that was sort of the number one mandate at international level that ensured they would have an international support. Um, once they did that, it all became much more complicated for them because the intention of international organizations waned a little bit. Um, the EU accession talks didn't go very far. And then domestically, um, the sort of progressive spirit that accompanied the early phases of the new government uh, was crushed. And so there was a very progressive Ministry of Finance that tried to implement and did implement for six months a progressive taxation, a minimal progressive taxation, and that that was crushed, right, by the pro-business component of the new government who then ousted these progressive components within within the new government. And so now we stand at a point where, uh, by all accounts of the people on the ground that I speak with, uh, you know, the, the prime minister has resorted to Gruevsky-like tactics of favoritism. Uh, there is not the same level of political oppression, and there is definitely uh, some, especially in the culture ministry, in other sort of education ministry, etc., some components of you know attempts to to breach or to, to create a more plural uh, voices to favor uh, more plural education, for instance, in terms of history, et cetera, as opposed to, to being mononational. Um, but some of the problems have not been solved. And so the debt has continued to increase. Uh, the productivity of those investments have not necessarily improved. Um, so some of the structural conditions that have fueled the rise of Gorevsky have not been addressed. Um, and I think it's because there has been a gap into how the progressive forces have been able to support this new government, while the older, more established oligarch business networks have been quite persistent, quite effective into, again, ensuring that their voice is more representative. So it's not as bad as Gorevsky, if you want to put it in one sentence, but it hasn't really changed the status quo in any significant way. Okay, I see. Uh, do you think then, it, with your study of Macedonia and, and its financial dynamics and the post-socialist transition, do you see Macedonia as representative in miniature of a broader regional dynamic 
do you think Macedonia tells us something important about sort of the process? And, and ultimately, I think obviously we can both agree sort of the failure of, of a coordinated, you know, peaceful transition to a better sort of um, government and economy since the 1990s. Absolutely. I think Macedonia has an enormous potential. Um, their relational dynamics in Macedonia are are fantastic. Uh, it, it's really a, a lovely place to be uh, on a relational, personal level. It's extremely hard to live there because of the economic and political conditions that people have to deal with. And it did not have to be that way. Um, if you look at some of the places where Macedonia and Macedonians excel at the moment, you know, um, IT, for instance, it shows the immense level of creativity that um, the local population has. And so it's not a question, as is often said, is, you know, a socialist state, therefore people don't know what to do or are not entrepreneurial enough. This is all, uh, you know, Western ideology. People ha- are very resourceful and very interested in, in doing interesting things. I mean, you know, even fake news, as much as we can um, deplore them, and that came from Macedonia, describe a level of inventiveness that is really interesting. Um, so there are, I think, the, the people material is there. The human material, the human relations are there. The question that is, that you know, it's very hard to answer is how are we going to enable people to, to reach the full potential of their abilities? And that requires investment. It requires um, a different sort of infrastructure. It requires the ability to move and come back. And a lot of these things have just been stalling because of, um, you know, problems with geopolitical um, ability. Macedonia has been so locked in for so long uh, that people, when they move and they leave, they just leave often, right? So there's all sorts of issues related to how the transition has been managed, most of which are of economic and political reasons, and they could be significantly improved um, by a different set of forces uh, globally. Uh, there's hope, of course, you know, we've seen... A lot of interesting developments uh, coming from Macedonia, but it's it's an extremely tough um, place to live in, especially if you have significant aspirations um, to, to change things or to try to do something different. On the other hand, um, I have to say that I have found also less conformity and conformism compared to other much more development places. Um, I live now in Australia and, um, you know, there is much more diversity of thought in this micro uh, dynamic uh, that, that I'm serving Macedonia compared to some of the places that I see here in Australia. Um, there just isn't enough money for everybody to, to transform that into something else. Um, and I think you could see how Macedonia's the dynamic and the structural dynamics around uh, the ability of elites to capture power, wealth, and especially finance is something that should give us all a lot to think about and should really push us in the West as well to to keep financial flows more accountable because, yes, we reap the bulk of its benefits, but even for us, uh, I mean, they are enabling elites to become more and more powerful and they are less and less translating into opportunities for all of us. And so I think thinking through what happened in Macedonia should also push us to think about, well, what is finance going to do to our democratic and wealthier society. Yeah, well, I hope life improves in Macedonia, and I hope uh, in 
other countries in um, you know the so-called West, we we escape the fate of uh, having a Gruevsky come to power in our own. I guess you know Skopje 2014s um, popping up everywhere. Um, in closing, uh, Fabio, I want to ask: Do you have any um, projects you're working on now? Anything you're developing for a second book that you're thinking of? So a couple of things that I've been working on. Um, one is uh, tragically very relevant now. You've all probably heard about the SWIFT discussion of cutting banks from the SWIFT system. Um, you might or might not be aware of the fact that during the socialist time, um, Yugoslavia and most uh, communist states had very complex ways of clearing payments between countries, especially with the West. And some of these systems involved a centralized unity in the case of the list of Yugoslavia, where there was an accounting system that was centralized. And that was dismantled with the Europeanization of the country. It was, you know, although that worked very well and allowed the country to really keep track of debts and who was paying what or not paying what, and that potentially intervene, it was, it was said, this is too centralized. We're just going to get rid of it and we're going to replace it with uh, other payment systems that are more privatized. So it was, I would like to retrace the history of that um, and to see how that informed other financial flows. Um, at the moment, because I've been stuck in Australia for the past few years, uh, I've worked um, quite substantially on startups here um, with a view towards making a comparison between Australia and Macedonia. The Macedonian side is a question mark. I've done a little bit of work there, but mostly here. And so I've worked in, in the platformization or how is it that increasingly most of the startups are looking like Amazon or, you know, um, eBay wannabe. And what is it that push everybody towards that sort of model? Uh, and so that's, uh, that's, in progress, not sure when it's going to become a book in and of its right, um, but that's something I've been doing. And then for fun, I've been designing um, digital flight assistance that is uh, AI AI projects that AI systems that help pilots uh, fly their planes. Oh, that's great! Uh, that's fascinating. Well, I hope good luck with the projects. Um, I just want to plug the book again for our listeners: Dark Finance, Illiquidity, and Authoritarianism at the Margins of Europe. Um, sadly, very relevant um, to events that are occurring now in Eastern Europe um, and hopefully lessons for preventing um, a further financialization um, and authoritarianization of the world. Um, Fabio, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation um, to our listeners. Again, I cannot recommend the book enough. Um, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you all have a great day. Thank you.